they're more aware of the impact that they're making. And we don't speak enough about impact. We don't invest enough in, in, um, in, in evaluation and, and metrics and evaluation. We don't do a lot of that that we will do for major donors, but we don't treat all our donors the same. And I feel we have to love all our donors. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. It's me, your guide on this journey to more strategic thinking about what's happening in the nonprofit marketing space. Justin. Uh, So this episode is with Angel Aloma. And Angel is quite possibly the nicest person on the planet. I can't tell you I had members of the team in the room whenever we were having this conversation with Angel. And, and when we finished, I turned to them and one of them said, point blank, he is the most pleasant, most wonderful, most kind-hearted person they had, had ever heard speak and that they could listen to him for days. And if you've spent time around Angel, you know that to be true. If you haven't, and this is your introduction to Angel Aloma, uh, you're in for a real treat. So Angel is the executive director for Food for the Poor, a faith-based organization. And Angel is, uh, you know, uh, so well-known in the, the nonprofit marketing space, especially in the direct marketing space. If you spend time around... Uh, some of the annual conferences uh, that ANA puts on or Bridge Conference, et cetera, that uh, Angel is um, a presence there. And what I, you know, what I, I, I love Angel getting into is his background. Um, you're going to hear him talk about that and, and how that plays into the person that he is, but more importantly, the leader that he is for their nonprofit. So wonderful chat. Hey, uh, be sure to hit us up on Twitter at groupthinkers and connect with us there. Uh, hopefully we hear from you, hear your comments on this episode. You can connect with us and we can talk more about uh, Angel, who thinks a lot about how to love on your donor. So uh, here you go. Let's get right to it. Angel Aloma. Hey, everybody. Thanks for checking out this episode of Group Thinkers. I am honored today to uh, get to introduce you to and and spend time with Angel Aloma from Food for the Poor. Angel, good morning. How are you, sir? I am doing great. Thank you. How are you? Uh, I'm doing very well. I'm I'm very excited for our chat. Uh, you know, we we spent just a brief moment together recently in in DC talking about what we're going to be talking about, and uh, that have exchange, exchanged some communication. And uh, it should be uh, not to set the bar too high, but it should be a really lovely conversation and something that I believe that you're going to be an expert about. We're going to talk today is uh, around retention and loving on your donors. But before we get there, uh, Angel, you are. Um, so well-known and well-loved in the nonprofit marketing sector, uh, but not not too many people know your journey. And so I would love for you to, just at the outset, share how you ended up in nonprofit marketing or in nonprofit land, as it were. Well, um, I was sort of always in nonprofit because I was a teacher in Catholic school, but I wasn't raising funds. 
but um, it's it was. I have always had an urge where the poor are concerned. From I was 16 years old in Jamaica, had joined the search movement, which is a Catholic movement, and we went out to paint hospitals in the country parts and to do all different type of social work. Then I started teaching, and I absolutely loved the profession. I loved being in the classroom. I loved the young people. I loved my subject, which started out as Spanish grammar and then eventually developed into Hispanic literature as the Hispanic population grew here in Broward County. And for 28 years, I was a teacher, and I loved it. My last five years, I took 10 students each summer and spent 30 days in the Dominican Republic doing missionary work and also combined it with a language immersion program where they couldn't speak any English. And we had a wonderful time. And I always, as I said, I always had this tendency towards the poor. So it was very fruitful for me to see the students who came from at least comfortable homes doing with water once an hour um, for two days. Every two days, the water would come to a standpipe in the community for one hour, and we'd be rushing, and uh, we had a resident rat, and half our roof, roof was missing. And so it was, you know, um, I would love to see my students in that setting. I love to see the kids in the mission who really um, they, they got great friendships with my students and uh, we really got to love each other. The last night they usually had a little party for us and uh, everybody was crying. So um, I went back to teaching and then um, when I, the year I turned 50, I got an offer. I, I started a program with my students before that to um, start a, a feeding program on Mondays for the homeless here in Broward County that were in a, in a parking lot, actually, in tents. And so every Monday we'd go and feed, and then Christmas came around, and we had four or six kids in the parking lot. We got bicycles for them and, uh, and a big wheel for the little two-year-old, mm-hmm. and it was really wonderful. Then on my 50th year, I got this offer to come and be executive vice president for Food for the Poor. And I thought to myself, no, I always thought I would die in the classroom. You know, I I love teaching. And uh, my three sons had always um, accused me of having a Messiah complex. They thought I always wanted to save the world. And my oldest son said to me, Dad, you're 50 years old. This offer may never come to you again. You have always wanted to save the world. And now you're being invited to do it in a much larger way. Wow. And I said, you know what? You're right. And so I accepted and I came here with great fear and tribulation, but a a wonderful, wise lady, she said to me, don't worry. Um, God doesn't choose the prepared. He prepares the chosen. And so it was. I took to it like a fish in water. And uh, at that time, the president CEO told me, you should go to all the meetings and just be quiet and just try to learn as much as possible for the first six months. Well, by three weeks, I was participating, and by four weeks, I was taking over all the meetings. (laughs) (laughs) It was a great journey. I just really fell into it. Then I started reading about fundraising, attending seminars, um, taking courses, and I loved it. There was something about, I guess, part of me, the Lebanese blood. Um, We love to, you know, to to buy and sell, and we love to do transactions, and that, I think, was, was part of it. And uh, I, 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 having been a teacher, I had a lot of ways to learn quickly. 
I also learned Creole because I wanted to be able to communicate with the poor in Haiti and with our staff in Haiti. And I spoke English and Spanish so I can communicate with all the different people in our area, which is basically the Caribbean, the Caribbean basin, Central America, and a couple right. countries in South America. And so that, that is the journey. Two years later, I got promoted to executive director and here I am. Well, you know what stands out to me on how is you're, you're sharing that journey, uh, from an early, early point in your career, you loved seeing, seeing people in the mission. Like there's some, you know, you, you sharing about taking those students and having them on the front lines, having them see the work of helping the poor. You love seeing people in the mission. And so that stands out to me. And I think that that's going to come back around in our conversation as we talk about, uh, loving on donors. But then the other thing that stands out to me is, uh, that, uh, you know, your background as a teacher helped prepare you to be a student. And you now, you still play this role of teacher and student in the space that we're in because things are changing so uh, rapidly. You constantly have to be learning, but you also have to help set up your teams to be successful as a teacher and share with them your wisdom and guidance. How, How do you strike the balance between student and teacher? Well, I attend, um, uh, see, when I go to conferences, I get many invitations from strategic partners to come and and, uh, have a meeting with them and have lunch with them and have dinner with them. I said, listen, I don't go there to be entertained. I go there to learn. So if you want to meet me at 7.30 in the morning, I'll be happy to hear what you have to say. Besides, I don't like to be taken out to expensive restaurants. I like, if I am attracted to what you have to offer, then that's all it needs. Mm -hmm. And so we have our meetings. I have meetings set up usually every morning when I go at 7.30 in the morning with different people. And basically... I, I love going to different um, you know, presentations because sometimes it's not that there is a lot new because once you've been in the sector for almost, um, well, I've been over 18 years now. Um, so once you have been in the sector for 18 years, you pretty much have heard a lot of stuff that you have, you know, you're going to hear again. But sometimes you internalize things differently when you hear it expressed in a different manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, Again, because I was a teacher, I I take copious notes, even though the presentation will be available afterwards, because what they say may not be available afterwards. It's not. It's usually the slides. And, you know, there is a lot that is spoken. So when I go to these um, presentations, I get that little notebook with about 100 pages. I usually bring it filled with notes. And then as I come back, I debrief with my team here. And I love both the learning and the teaching. It, it's wonderful. I love reading books. Unfortunately, I don't read so much for pleasure anymore, except for the pleasure I do derive from learning for the sector. I read once I exhausted a lot of the nonprofit literature, I went on to sales. One of my presentations for the DMA was um, to sell. I used it with to sell is whatever it said first and to, and to steal is divine because what I was doing basically is stealing things from sales because the corporate can afford to spend hundreds of thousands without any criticism. If we as nonprofits spend to learn, we are heavily criticized. So I went to sales and things that had been proven in sales, just little things that, that so apply to, to major giving, for example. For example, in one of the books I read, it said that um, if a waitress gives a light touch on the shoulder to the person who is paying the bill, the likelihood of an increased um, tip 
is very, very likely. So it's much more likely than if she does not, because it gives a feeling of family, of trust, of a, a very slight tip, you know, a tap on the shoulder, not like, sure. you know, anything that would, that would seem odd. And uh, so basically with, with major donors, that works beautifully. You know, when you go to visit them, you know, even um, having similar um, gestures and things like that, like having any commonalities. I learned that from the sales things. If you have a commonality, not to make it up, but if you have a commonality with a person, if you're both from the same country, if you speak the same language, if you like the same type of sports, if you like the same type of movies, any commonality because of the herding um, instinct of man from the early days of cavemen, um, any commonality gives trust, gives warmth. Gives, so I, I, I read everything with that in mind, with trying to see what can I use um, for our team to be better. And because we are all people of the light, all nonprofits, I don't believe in proprietary information. And when I do presentations at the DMA or at the AFP or at any of the, the ANA and whatever, um, I always share everything. I throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And well, you know, because on, sorry. We have, a, we have an incredibly collegial sector. It's, it's interesting. Absolutely. At, you know, these events that you're referencing and whenever you have nonprofit marketing leaders come together, we're very open to sharing uh, large amounts of, of information and it benefits us. And there is this aspect of reciprocity because we're all in the business of doing good and in some good, ways absolutely. trying to save the world, I think that does exist. Now, it may not exist in full transparency 100% of the time, but I do think that in large part, we are comfortable as a sector of sharing learnings or sharing exactly how we connected with these people. Why do you think that is? Um, I think for, for that reason that we're all doing good, I think we want the sector to succeed. It's not just a love of your mission, of your own mission. It's a love of the sector, of knowing that it's all intercombined because if we don't have a good environment, people are going to die. If we don't have uh, people who speak to people who are, who are considering suicide, they're going to die. If we don't feed the hungry people are going to die. If we don't do clean water, people are going to die. I mean, we are all trying to save something. And that is a bond that is very, very strong. And, and that is the reason why I received that award a few weeks ago, the Max Hart Award, because I go to like small nonprofits, for example, and if they can't afford a consultant, you know, let's say, and I will take at my own expense, I'll go there and give them a full day of, of, uh, of fundraising. I will give them four presentations and answer their questions. Um, people from nonprofits have visited me here, sat with me for two hours to try to, to learn some of the things that I know. And I try always to learn from them also because, you know, it's, uh, I, I go to the IFC every year. It's an international fundraising congress in Holland. And there you hear 63 countries represented. You hear people from India who tell you how they fundraise. And at first you think, that won't work for me. But then you think, but maybe if I tweak this and tweak that, I, you get ideas, you know? So I do that. I go to them and I hear their ideas. I give them mine. And, uh, and I do it, you know, 
without any charge to them because that's uh, usually when I see young people, I love it when I present and I have young people in the audience. First of all, it throws me back to, to the senior and junior year of high school, which is my two preferences for teaching. <laughs> and uh, and secondly, um, I, I always tell them, if you ever want to bounce an idea off of me, feel free. And I tell them email is my preferred because I have a policy that I never go to bed at night, even if it's at one in the morning or at two, um, without clearing my inbox. I'm not one of these people who have 600 emails on their inbox. I have to clear it or else I can't think for the next day. Mm. So I do that. Now, the phone is also good, but I travel a tremendous amount to the countries. As you said, I love being with people who I'm Exposing to the to the poverty there, um, and and the, the amount you learn from the poor is so fantastic. Also, this episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by Holidays: The Myth and Reality Behind Giving in December 2018. Did you know that one in five donors reported giving less to nonprofits last December? I know that for organizations that we work with. Things were great through November, even maybe the first week of December. And then compared to what we had traditionally seen in the last three weeks of December, things started to dry up. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who noticed a sudden drop in donations compared to what we are used to with December. So some questions started to pop up into the nonprofit marketing ether. Was it the tax laws? Was it the economy? Was it the government shutdown? we decided to find answers from the donor's perspective. So RKD Group partnered with McQueen, Mackin and Associates to conduct a unique study speaking directly to donors to find out why giving dropped so drastically last December. You can download the full white paper at givingindecember.com find out exactly what donors had to say about their change in giving behavior and use that to build your strategies going into year end 2019. So head over to givingindecember.com, download the white paper. And now back to group thinkers. There's so much good stuff in there. There really is. Uh, as we look at, you know, the landscape of nonprofit marketing, uh, one of the headlines that has been repeated and, uh, you know, you see there's a lot of, there can be at times doom and gloom associated with, uh, with retention. And generally speaking, we're seeing, you know, more revenue, but less donors, less people. And this has been something that's been discussed, like you said, at the recent DC nonprofit conference or right. at uh, AFP and, and at other places. Why do you think that retention is, it, well, why do you think it's such an issue right now? Why do you think that nonprofits are, are struggling to hold <laughs> on to people that uh, are contributing to their cause? Because we don't treat all our donors as if they were potential major donors. Um, you see, our major donors, we give them less mail. We have more direct communications. Um, we have a lot of advantages for them. We give them information that other donors do not get, in the, in, uh, even though we mail them more. <laughs> they don't get all that information that they get. They're more aware of the impact that they're making, and we don't speak enough about impact. We don't 
invest enough in in um, in in evaluation and and metrics and evaluation. We don't do a lot of that that we will do for major donors, but we don't treat all our donors the same. And I feel we have to love all our donors. And and honestly, it's something that we also struggle with here because it's very difficult. You always have the financial people says, well, but the bottom line shows this. Sure. And But you have to think not campaign by campaign, but the long term, the big picture. So we're doing right now everything possible to fight that, that mindset of, uh, well, the, the bottom line is everything because the bottom line may give you for the immediate, but then you do lose many donors. Um, we are a little bit better than, than the sector at large where the percentage of donors we lose, but we still lose too many. Yeah. We still lose too many who are excited when they first come on. And, uh, you know, then a lot of them don't give us a second gift. And right. that's because we don't do a good enough job of loving them, of uh, we don't treat them all as well as we should. We don't give them enough. And that's something that I preach about whenever I, I present. What do you give your donors besides that good feeling you have when you do good? It can't just be that because there are 1.5 million charities in the U.S. are registered with the IRS and are doing good. Well, the large majority anyway. <laughs> right. And so... And so basically we have to do something extra in our case here at food for the poor. For example, we have a very active prayer ministry and we don't, we, every single piece we send out with an appeal, we put a prayer request form. And when they're returned to us, we don't just put them in a big basket and lay hands over them. I should say we're a Christian um, organization. So mm -hmm. we don't just lay hands over them in a big basket. If we have phone numbers, we call back those people and pray with them on the phone. If they don't have phone numbers, when we get together in the morning for prayer, they're distributed to everyone and we pray for each one and we call out the ones that actually are, are, you know, that touch our hearts and so that the whole group can be aware of them. And that's a, one big gift and still not enough. You know, we send them banana bark cards that are produced in Haiti. Um, we, we, I communicate, I, I don't have a ghostwriter. I, I write my own letters to the donors that give a certain level of gift. We are a very large organization. So unfortunately I can't do it with everyone, but a certain um, amount, and it's not a huge amount, it's 3000 and up. I write a personal letter to those. Um, whenever I am in the area, um, I visit donors who, you know, I, I have gotten to know over the years. And it, it's a wonderful thing. And, and you have to love the donors. You know, you have to really um, not just treat them like friends. They have to become your friends. And so we, as I said, are also struggling with that retention thing. But we are working to make it better and better. Well, one of the things that I, I struggle with in hearing all of your brilliant examples of things that you do is how do you scale that? How do you scale that? How do you scale that? Because we want to keep more of our donors. We want to. And yeah. so if we're trying to increase that percentage, you know, up three points, five points, whatever it is, uh, how do we take our time, which is finite, and then make the most of it so that we can reach 10 more donors or 50 more donors? How do you balance what you can do and how to scale that? You have to invest. 
You have to really make large investments. You have to recognize first the value of those donors staying and then make the necessary investments. For example, at Food for the Poor, we have our own internal call center. And basically 71 people in that, in, in that they don't like to be called a call center, so I have sure. to correct that. We have our own donor relations department because they do much more than just call. I mean, they pray with the donors, they thank them, they express gratitude. And we have 12 of the callers that their only job is to express gratitude and to pray with the donor. Wow. Every other caller, even when they're um, even when they're fundraising, they have to offer prayer and gratitude when they call a donor, even if it's on a campaign. So that means a lot. You, I, I can't tell you the number of letters we get back of someone who said they were considering suicide and they got a call from our donor and they prayed with them and they realized that wasn't the right thing for them to do. You know, I mean, it, it makes me cry. I, I, I always say I cry on my job twice a day, you know, because there is so much that happens that is beautiful, not only with the poor, but also with our staff. Yes. Which is another point. You have to treat your staff with love. And I, and as I said at the, at the award ceremony, I know it sounds like Pollyanna, like, you know, like, you know, idealists, you know, heads in the cloud, but if you don't love your staff, they won't produce what they should be producing. Um, they have done so many studies where salary is actually the fourth or fifth most important thing for people. Mm-hmm. They have to be they have to be made to feel like part of a family so they can feel part of the mission, uh, you know, and, and so you have to treat them with love and the, the relationship I have with the staff, I can't tell you. I, I, well, I had it with my students, which is why I'm probably the only 68-year-old with a 2,300 plus um, friends on Facebook because only about 50 of them are personal friends my age. Um, 2,000 plus of them are my past students who didn't want to lose touch. And I'm so grateful for that. But you, ha- but your staff has to be the same. It has to be based on treating them well, on loving them, so that they can feel in the right mood and the right frame of mind to love the donors. There's, uh, there is, as you're alluding to, there's a direct connection from this back into your time in the classroom and what you said at the beginning of you loved taking students to be a part of the mission or be a part of the cause and uh, and. And what I feel in hearing you talk about the donor relations work that your team, that your organization has in place, that there is a, uh, there is employment branding, so to speak. There is a commitment to the team and a commitment to the mission at all levels of the organization so that when someone is on the phone with the donor, regardless of the level that that person has contributed or invested in your cause, that they feel appreciated, that they feel a connection to the mission, that they feel a connection to what you're doing as an organization. And that can help fuel someone's relationship with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I always tell them when I lead prayer in the morning, I always remind them, I said, if we can say we love the poor whom we hardly ever see personally, and we can say we love our donors whom we hardly ever see, we would be hypocrites if we can't love each other here who are working together eight, nine hours every single day. Even though it's a lot of us, it's 325 of us here. But, you know, I go to the lunchroom and sit with everyone. I talk to everyone. I visit the departments. I, you know, I tell them funny stories. I sing for them. I do all sort of stuff. And if you 
had heard me singing, you realize that's a funny story too. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and, and, you know, you mentioned that you, you craft your own content and, and I yes. think that there's, there's also something there and that the more authentic, the more personal, uh, the information that comes from the organization, the more likelihood that it's going to connect. It's not going to feel, uh, as mass produced. It's not going to feel, uh, you know, it's going to feel more vulnerable. I, I would assume. Absolutely. I, I can't agree more. Yeah. Uh, so, so as much as, you know, these are, these are things that other nonprofits can certainly take and implement and test into and, and try to um, add tangible ways to, you know, be more authentic and be more uh, connected to the mission throughout the entire organization. Uh, we're also in a an interesting state of evolution as a nonprofit sector, uh, you know, as we wrestle with things around data and just the way in which people connecting with us, the way in which our, our donors are changing their own behaviors. So just curious from your perspective on how, where do you see the, the sector uh, evolving next? And, and how do you see the, this next generation of nonprofit marketers prioritizing their time and energy versus what the current generation has done? I think um, technology has been a blessing and a curse, um, but I prefer to see the glass half full rather than half empty. I, I went to a very special conference that is by invitation only, only about 30 of us, and everyone was so negative. At the end of the conference said, look, we did better than last year. I said, we can't allow our issues to define us. We have to supersede them. And I said, think about it. For everything you have mentioned that's negative, we have positive things to counteract. it. Um, for example, I gave them the example we are, have been using co-ops um, instead of just doing private lists, and our, um, you know, our acquisition efforts increased, and uh, you know, we so basically that helped tremendously. Um, we um, are dabbling with machine learning. We're still doing tests with machine learning, that didn't exist ten years ago, at least not publicly, so we could use it, and now it's giving us really good results. We did a test with them where they recommended um, which ones to mail out of a certain group, um, which ones to mail the most, which ones were dubious, and which ones not to mail. We wanted to test against them, so we mailed all of them. And gosh darn it, the ones they told us not to mail, we did terribly with. The ones they told us to mail for sure, we did wonderfully with. And the ones that were dubious, we did neither good nor bad. It was, it was middle ground. So they, you know, Technology is giving us so much. At the same time, we have to deal with privacy issue with the states, with the attorney generals. We have to deal with laws, with the Congress, with the Senate. We have to deal with laws like giving them everyone a 12,000 allowance for nonprofits. So a lot of people are probably thinking, well, why give it to the nonprofits if we can get 24,000 between my wife and myself as an allowance in our income tax? So they keep doing things like on April 10th, um, a group of us are going up from the from the nonprofit alliance. A group of us are going to visit the Congress and the Senate. Mm -hmm. And I always go because I, I, you always they don't understand a lot of the time. So we have to educate and let them know what the challenges are. For example, where privacy is concerned, they think, oh, well, you shouldn't have all this information for the donors. If we didn't, we'd be mailing blind. Now we mail people that we feel would respond to what we have to say, would respond to whom we are helping 
helping. Um, we don't want to mail people who, who exclusively help the environment because that's not their interest. We want to help people who are interested in feeding starving children in giving them clean water and giving them an education, people who are homeless that we can build homes for. We don't want to, to hit people who have no interest because we'd be wasting money and annoying them. Um, so basically having information helps us. You know, and I know it's scary sometimes, like when I was looking at something on Amazon and the next day it appears next to my wall on Facebook, right. but it's kind of great because rather than putting something there, which doesn't interest me at all, I'd rather see something that I'm interested in, you know? Well, and so, so that's, there, there is, you've got this, this moment in time to where nonprofit marketing for, uh, let's say the last 50 years has been about educating the public so that they can invest with us. And maybe we're at this tipping point now to where we're taking a more active role in educating lawmakers and legislators that we have not done or done as well before. And that's exciting. It is scary, but it's also exciting because I, I think it does set up uh, nonprofits to be more of a voice going forward. So for, for you and the team that will be you know, uh, meeting with members of Congress uh, in April, that's hugely important. That's a, that's a touchstone moment for us as a sector going forward in terms of the, uh, the impact that we can have in having a voice uh, when it comes to data regulation and privacy. Absolutely, because I feel that we honestly have not had a strong enough voice as a sector, a sector that gives 10% of the employment in the country. And that's not counting all the people like the, the ones that are, that work with us, like strategic partners and people like yourself, for example, that, that deals with us. It's not counting any of those. I'm talking just people who work actually for nonprofits. Correct. That's 10% of the employment. Um, you know, it, it's, we contribute a lot to the domestic gross domestic product. You know, it, it's, things for for people who do as much good as we do, who take up the slack when the government cuts the budget here locally, you know, and who take up the slack, you know, when, when countries cannot afford to do what they need to do, you know, we don't have enough of a voice and uh, the nonprofit alliance, we're trying to do something about that. So basically that's why we are together. That's because we need to stick together to have a strong, a powerful voice. Yeah, I think that there is uh, there is a new era of, you know, marketing sophistication and leadership sophistication that we'll see in the this next generation of nonprofit leaders because we have gotten to a place to where that's what's required and and we tend to step up uh, whenever you know uh, times like this arise and and I think that that's important for us. Uh, so just you know, kind of. Kind of in in wrapping up, where on hell? Where can people connect with you? How can uh, as our listeners hear this? You know, they get excited about the internal donor relations team that you have and and want to connect with you. What's the best place to do that? Uh, where can they find? Well, you I always for those who come to vacation in Florida or pass by here, have relatives here. I always welcome visitors. Um, as you can tell, I love talking. <laughs> And, uh, uh, you know, I welcome visitors here. I have them quite frequently. And, uh, but my email, as I said, is my most productive, aaloma at foodforthepoor.com.org. Either one works. Yeah. Um, uh, so basically, you know, they can email me. I, I love to discuss things on the phone. As I said, my phone, I have a very heavy travel schedule, so it depends 
on where I am. But again, if, you know, if they write me an email and said, when are you going to be home so we can have a conversation? I'm happy to do it. Very cool. Well, Angel, I think, you know, you, you uh, and the award that you received recently, the Max Hard uh, Nonprofit Leadership Award is, uh, is evidence of this, but you certainly are a treasure for the nonprofit marketing space. And so we appreciate you spending time with us. Uh, and, and I know that we can always learn a thing or two from uh, hearing you share what, what your team is doing and what you see happening in the sector. So thank you for, for sharing time with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So there's the chat with Angel. Uh, he, he snuck in this phrase about, I don't know, about 10 minutes into the chat. Hopefully it st- stands out to you. And he said that we are all people of the light. And Angel's perspective is that all of us in the nonprofit marketing space are doing things for the good. Uh, you know, it connects me back to Arcady Group's mission statement, you know, that we're connecting people and donors to organizations that are making the world more humane, just, and compassionate. There are so many wonderful organizations that are accomplishing or attempting to accomplish some um, really big things in their mission. And uh, we can learn so much from each other. And that's part of the reasons, uh, part of, of why we started Group Thinkers as a podcast is to be able to share what innovators are doing in the nonprofit marketing space to make their programs go further, to connect better with donors. And so I, I love Angel's perspective on how to do that. You know, I, I also truly appreciate that he is committed to both learning and teaching. And we all need people that are sewing into us and showing us where that next milestone is for us, helping provide guidance along the way. Uh, and so Angel does a fantastic job of doing that both for his connection to donors to talk about impact, but then also his connection to his staff and what he learns from his staff. So uh, just, you know, like I said, uh, he is quite possibly the the kindest person uh, on the planet, certainly one of the kindest in the direct marketing space. And and hopefully you enjoyed the chat with him today. Hey, um, be sure to Head on over to the blog at RKD Group. Find out uh, some of our thoughts on donor retention and how to love on your donor. We've got uh, examples of uh, breakthroughs and case studies at uh, the blog as well as the rkdgroup.com slash breakthroughs. So um, you can hit that content up. Uh, find all the top content that we've got on the blog. Be sure to connect with us on social. You can find us on Twitter at Group Thinkers. You can find us also at RKD Group. So um, that's it for this episode. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks goes out to the production team, including Ryan Mellinger, as well as our content marketing team, Suzanne, Holly, and Carly for their work on this and every episode of Group Thinkers.